You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Pray with me. Father, what a great and amazing gift your word is to us. And what a great, amazing gift your spirit is to us that brings your word to life in us, that teaches us the reality of who we are and the reality of who you are. Father, I ask in your mercy and in your grace that you would bless these, your children, today by your Spirit. Lord, teach us. Teach us of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God is love. We're told this truth in 1 John 4. And we who identify ourselves as belonging to God, who use his name as an identifier, who call ourselves Christian, we believe this truth. But we do not, by and large, understand what that means. See, back in the 70s, and most of you sitting here weren't born then, But back in the cities, there was this TV show called Love American Style, which very accurately demonstrated what our culture understands love to be. It was all based around appearances and feelings, and it was all very me-centered. What was appealing to you, what made you feel good, that was love. And what was not appealing to you and didn't make you feel good, that was not. And this understanding of love has not changed in our culture. And not only has it not changed, but it's actually affected how people who identify as Christian, how we view love. And this letter, this letter is a reflector of this truth. This letter is centered on the truth of love, centered on the great benefit that comes from the love of God and the amazing privilege of being a slave of God. And that language, that language is foreign to most of our ears and our understanding concerning what God is and who we are in him. And I'm confident that if you were to ask most people who identify as Christians what this letter is about, if they knew that it was in the Bible, they would more than likely tell you that it's about a runaway slave that Paul is sending back to his master. And the ones that may have actually read it, they would then go on to tell you that Paul is manipulating this man by using his authority within the church to get him to do what Paul wants him to do. And what they can't understand is why this letter is in the Bible and why doesn't Paul address the issue of slavery? You see, they may have read these words correctly, but they're wrong about the intent of this letter. 
You see, love is at the center of this letter. It's the driving force within it. It's love that defines it. And it's because of this that Paul can make this appeal to Philemon. Paul builds this letter all based upon love. Verses 1 through 3 are the foundation that the letter is written on. Verses 4 through 7 are the prayer that is built upon that foundation. And verses 8 through 20 are the petition that is rooted in this foundation. And then verses 21 through 25 are the confidence that he had because of that foundation. And love is that foundation for all of this. And God is love. And it's the practical demonstration of the love of God that is the catalyst behind this letter. And it's our understanding of that love that is what has prevented many from knowing why this letter made it into the Bible in the first place. We don't understand the love of God. And by and large, we still have that love American style understanding of the love of God. So what is the love of God? To understand this, you must understand why God created all that there is. And he did that because he desired to demonstrate to the greatest degree his love. And so he created. And then within his creation, he created Man in his image, good and perfect. And man sinned and sold himself into the slavery of self, sold himself to sin. And God, desiring to receive the greatest amount of glory, sent his son who willingly stepped down out of eternity, became man, lived perfectly, and throughout his entire time on earth, told the absolute truth concerning the love of his father and he was murdered for it and this is the love of God towards us we are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God this is love The question we need to ask is, is it the things that are given to us by God that are the greatest demonstration of this love? Now, a woman may think that her fiancé really loves her because he just gives her a five-carat diamond ring. Or a husband may think that his wife really loves, her, loves him because she just bought him a hunting rifle. And both of those our love American style thinking. And this is the same thinking that Satan has concerning the love of God. He told God, Satan told God that the only reason that Job feared him was because of the stuff that God gave him. So God told Satan, test this theory, take his stuff and his family and let's see whether or not he loves me, values me or not. And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 21. But Satan didn't get it. 
He was still wrong concerning the love and the importance of God. So so God asked Satan again concerning Job, and Satan again says, says the exact same thing. Job only loves you because of what you give him. He knows his life is protected by you. You take that away, and he will, have, he will find no value in you. So God let Satan have his way. And the person of Job was affected. And in the end, Job demonstrated that he understood the value and the worth of the love of God. He said, shall we receive from God, good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Chapter 2, verse 10. We don't understand the love of God for us. We may understand how it affects us personally, that it revealed my sin and my need for a Savior, and that is love. But that is only the base, the foundation, the entry point into the love of God. But when we are born again, when we are saved, we are saved from the wrath of God and saved to a great salvation that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the truth that is told to us in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's that second part that we seem to be a little bit muddle-headed on, that we don't really understand. That first part, we get that first part. We can proudly proclaim what the Lord has done for me. He has set me free. I am no longer a slave to sin and death. I am more than a conqueror in Christ. We think, though, that walking an aisle and then maybe us just reading a Bible, refraining from swearing, living morally upright, that is the love of God in our lives. And this is why we don't understand the importance of this letter or how these saints, these saints understood the love of God to work practically in their lives. For most evangelicals, our lives are about the love of God and me. Their lives was about the love of God and the church. And this letter is from Paul, and it is to Philemon. And Onsimius is the person that is at the center of the reason for writing it. And this man was a slave that Paul was sending back to his master. But this letter is not just from Paul. It's also from Timothy. And it's not just written to that man Philemon. It's also written to Aphia, who Paul calls our sister, and who historians agree was the wife of Philemon, and to Archippus, who Paul calls our fellow, our fellow soldier, and who historians agree was the son of Philemon and Aphia. And it was written to this man and his family. But not just this man or his family. 
It was also written to the church that met in their house. In the opening sentences of this letter, what we would understand to be the first three verses, Paul gives the to and the from of this letter, and even the primary reason for it, or the why. And the reason for this letter is not centered primarily on people. He says, the grace and peace of of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. It's for the sake of Christ that Paul prays the effective sharing of this man's faith. It is in Christ that Paul finds his boldness, verse 8. And it is for Christ that Paul is a prisoner in. And it is in Christ that Paul desires to have his heart refreshed, verse 20. And it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul ends this letter with. So no matter what Paul was asking of Philemon, he understood the request to have a direct bearing and effect on all the church that was involved with these two men. And, the, and love is the theme of this letter. But not love between humans, between Philemon and Onesimus, as good as that is, but a more intimate and eternal love, the love of God found in the heart of a believer. Love is mentioned by Paul multiple times in this letter. He's heard of the love that Philemon has for the Lord, verse 4. He himself has been a recipient of that love, verse 5. But it is how he has been a recipient of this love that is different than we understand and what matters the most to him. Again, this isn't how we've been taught how love works. We gauge a person's love towards us by their actions towards us. We understand love only as it is directed towards us, how we feel at that moment. I know that you love me by how you act towards me. But this is not the love that Paul is talking about and how he understands love. He prays for this man who has been, who has, he has been refreshed by his love but not because of anything that this man has done for Paul, not because Philemon has sent him a check or a Hallmark card. Verses 4 and 5. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He prays for this man. He has affection for this man because of how this man has behaved, but not towards him, but towards the church. And this is not a love we understand. We don't understand love for the church. We may be taught that you can't be a lone ranger Christian, that you must join a church, but usually that man that tells you that more than likely lives like a lone ranger Christian. And in case you didn't know about the rangers, the rangers were and are peacekeepers. They were all united under the banner of the law. And while they were all rangers, while they were all part of the same organization, they primarily were all lone rangers, working and living alone, which is exactly how most evangelicals Even those who join a church live. Oh, they may have joined a church, but the church is not their life. Corporate worship 
is not necessary. It can be uh, substituted with any number of things. By any number of things. After all, I can church, I could just watch church online. I can read my Bible anytime I want. I mean, I can catch that sermon later. We don't understand why this hour, this hour, we don't understand why this hour is so special. And this thinking is not biblical. It was Augustine who was reported to have coined the phrase, outside of the church there is no salvation. And, outside of, and that truth is foreign to our modern ears. We say and we hear and we repeat, repeat stories about those who claim to have come to Christ at a revival, who are saved maybe at Falls Creek, and, dev, and then never make the church the center of their lives. Most never join a church, and even those that do join, they join in name only. Oh, their name may be on the roster, but the body that they covenant with is not the center of their life. And we think that it's normal. We think that it's normal to call a person a Christian who doesn't love the body of Christ. Cyprian said it so well in the third century. He said, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. John Calvin in the Institutes declares, there is no other way to enter into, there is no other, there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at, our, at her breast, Away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. God is our Father. The church is our mother. Can you hear the importance of not just being a member, but having the church be your life? But were these men right? Is this biblical truth? Well, we are told on one occasion when Jesus was meeting with the church that his mother and his brothers came to gather him up. <clears throat> In Mark 3, verses 31 through 35. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And that God is the Father of all that are given faith. That's told to us many times within Scripture, such as 1 John 1.12 and Matthew 23.9. And you can't read 1 Corinthians and not understand the importance of the church that the church is the body of Christ, the very presence of Christ in the world. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And as a Christian, we are united to Christ, becoming members of his body. We are found in him, as told to us in Philippians 3, 9. This is how we are made righteous. 
as told to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul compares this the salvation of, and our union with Christ to the union of marriage where the two become one flesh. In the same ways, he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body, Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. But this union is not personal or singular. Meaning that we alone by ourselves, that it's just me and Jesus, we do not just become one with Jesus, but our union, while it is individual in salvation, it's corporate in nature. Christ does love each of us, but he loves the church corporately, and he died for it. And this father-mother imagery, this isn't new. It's not even new to the new covenant. It's found throughout the Old Testament, as shown to us in Ezekiel 16. There Jerusalem is portrayed as a helpless and destitute infant whom Yahweh has mercy on and whom he enters into a marriage covenant with, and he makes her beautiful, and she bears him many sons and daughters, chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. And the image of the people of God as the bride of Yahweh is one of the most common themes in the prophetic language, in the prophetic writings, found in Isaiah 55, 54, chapter 62, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3, and Hosea chapter 2 and 5. And Paul, in the New Testament, he picks up on this truth in his allegory of Hagar and Sarah in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, where he declares that the Jerusalem that is from above is free, and she is our mother, verse 26. And this is the same heavenly Jerusalem that is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. The city of the living God, and it is the home of the church of the firstborn, the spirits of the righteous men made perfect. And in Revelation 12, the woman who gives birth to the Son, who will rule the nations, also gives birth to many others, as is seen by the fact that the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus Revelation 12, verse 17. And this manner of thinking concerning the church and the importance of the church and the life of the believer has been lost on our generation. We have become consumers within the church and not brides, not members of one body living within it as if it is the most important relationship that we will have this side of heaven. How many people do we know in making decisions in their life use the church as the most important factor on whether or not they're going to move, whether or not they're going to take a job, whether or not they should actually marry that person? But this, however, was not how Paul in the early church understood the body of Christ to be, as evidenced by verses 6 and 7. 
Here, Paul not only acknowledges how he has been refreshed by the love of Philemon, but he goes on to tell him and us what it is that he is actually praying for this man. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Verse 6, Paul cares for this man. He loves this man. He's been refreshed by the, this man's love. And then he prays specifically for him. But what he prays for this man is very different than how we often pray for people. He prays that as Philemon shares his faith, and this is how Paul knew this, the love of this man, how he knew this love to be, that he was a man who shared the love of God with others. And then Paul tells us why the sharing of our faith is so important. Not for people. We share our faith with people. And the people, though, that Paul is thinking about when he says that, they're the church. And we know this because he says the knowledge of every good thing that is in us. And this knowledge, this love, isn't found outside of the church. It's special. It's only found in the church. So that they, within the church, would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. But the sharing of his faith, the building up of the faith in the church, is all for the sake of Christ. And then Paul demonstrates how the love of God is made manifest to him. In verse 7, he says he has derived joy and comfort from his love because the hearts of the saints in that church, the church within Philemon's house, they have been refreshed by him. This is the foundation of the request that Paul is, will actually make within this letter. And in verses 8 through 10, then, Paul begins to make his case with this man who he calls brother. He says, Accordingly, though, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onsimius, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Accordingly. In other words... Philemon, because of your love for the Lord, because I know of your love for the body, I know that I could command you as an apostle, and you would obey. But because we are brothers, and for the sake of the church, I am asking you instead. And notice, though, that Paul never refers to himself as an apostle, nor does he even refer to himself as a slave either, as he does very often in a lot of his letters. Throughout this letter, Paul is using familial language. Timothy, our brother, Apphia, our sister, referring to himself first as a prisoner for Christ and then as an old man and calling Philemon his brother in verse 7. And the appeal that he makes for Onsimius is that from a father to a son. The main thrust of the validity of the request by Paul is this. The love of Christ. The faith that is given to the believers. The purchasing of our souls off the auction block. Being transferred from the family of Satan. Being moved to being a slave or from being a slave to sin and being made a slave to God. This, this truth should make 
a difference in the life of the believer. And the manifestation of the love of God in the life of the believer is all for the church. And what Paul is saying in this letter is that the love of Christ in each of us and how we deal with others in the body because of it is directly related to and has a direct effect on the church. And our relationships are all for Christ. Paul's identification first as a prisoner and then as an old man in this letter is reflective of an understanding of his authority in Christ. Could he have lorded it over Philemon? Well, the answer is obvious. It's given to us in this text. Yes. But he understood that the Lord had placed him in such a position of leadership and authority. And yet, instead of appealing to this man on the basis of his position in the church, he appealed to him from his most important position, that of being found in Christ. You see, Paul understood that he was just like Philemon. And understood that because of the love that Philemon has demonstrated for the body, that he would now understand that he, Philemon, was now just like Onesimus. So let's look at the, the appeal that Paul is making to Philemon, verses 11 through 22. He said, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have gladly... Um, I've been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, in verse 15, this is verse 15, this is the key within this letter. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Now, there's speculation concerning this letter. It's speculated that Onesimus was a runaway slave, that stole from his master, who came across Paul in Rome and was converted there and then was sent back to Philemon with this letter, and that Paul was appealing to that man Philemon to be lax in his discipline of Onesimus. And in fact, what Paul was actually asking for was that Philemon would emancipate Onesimus, that he would set him free. But there's another option as to what has occurred. You see, it was necessary in those days for those that were placed under house arrest, as Paul was, to have their needs provided for through others. If you had no family and friends, you didn't eat and you weren't cared for. 
perhaps because of the prior relationship that he had with Philemon, that Philemon sent Onesimus to Paul for a time to care for him in practical ways during his imprisonment. And while he was there, Christ opened the eyes of his heart, made him part of the family of God, and he was then being sent back to Philemon at a predetermined time. And that the appeal that Paul was making here is twofold. First, understand that this man who was once unprofitable for the body, since he wasn't converted before, is now a brother to you. And I consider him a son as he came to Christ under my ministry. This would then be the thrust of verse 10 and the play on his name, which means useful in the Greek. And the second appeal that Paul is making, he's asking is that Philemon send him back to Paul, not to care for his physical needs, but to help in the gospel ministry that was taking place there. And there's a couple strong reasons that we should hold or could hold to this thinking concerning this letter. And the first is, is that if Simeus was a runaway slave, and if he was caught in Rome, he would not have been placed where Paul was. He would have been thrown into a dungeon, not under house arrest. Paul was a Roman citizen, and Simeus could not have been a Roman citizen because he was a slave. And citizens were never mixed with non-citizens in prison. And secondly, if he had run away and come to Paul under, for guidance while Paul was under house arrest, Paul would have been breaking the law by not reporting him to the authorities immediately, which would then go against how Paul tells us to act in Romans 13 and obeying the authorities above us. And reading the letter with this mindset allows us to actually understand the familiar context within this letter. It would also then demonstrate how important the church was in the life of the believer. Because if this were the case, and then Simeus was sent to Paul unconverted and came to Christ under the ministry of Paul, and then there became an effective minister of the gospel, that information would have been the most important information that Paul would want to pass on to Philemon. And Paul, knowing the love that Philemon has for the church, he can then make his appeal based upon prior demonstrated performance of Philemon. And Paul wasn't asking that Philemon set Onesimus free. Because in the best sense of the word, he has already been set free. He was no longer a slave, but a beloved brother. And not just a brother, but a useful one. His value before may have been what he could do for people in the task that he performed, but now, now he's truly useful, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 16. And the appeal made by Paul in verses 18 through 20 all hang on and are determined by verse 17. In case you didn't know it, Paul was kind of a big deal. I mean, he was very well known. And the church knew that God spoke through him, as God did through many of the other apostles. But he wasn't a big deal because of anything within himself, something that he's already alluded to by calling himself a prisoner of Christ and an old man. He was a big deal because of whose he was and not who he was. And it was by this authority of whose he was that he's making the appeal to Philemon. And he tells him 
of the gifts that God has now bestowed on his former slave, Onimesis. He says if, in verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. For Philemon and the church that met in his house, this would have been a shocking revelation. Paul was saying that this man, this man who was a slave, is the same as he is. That he's just as an effective a gospel presenter as he was. And he's using the same sort of language concerning this man that Jesus did about his father. John 14, 9, Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then Paul ends this letter. He ends this letter confident that Philemon would be excited to hear of the conversion of this man. And because his heart was for the church and the gospel, the request by Paul would be met. And then Paul had started this letter highlighting the body there in the house of Philemon. And he ends this letter by highlighting the body that was there with him. Verses 23 through 25. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And as I said earlier, the question that has risen because of this letter is why didn't Paul appeal to Philemon to set Onesimus free? Why did he ask him or even demand that he set this brother free? Because Paul understood the centrality of the church in the life of the believer. Paul knew that since Philemon understood that we were all one body and individually members of it, as told to us in 1 Corinthians 12, since he knew and understood that those outside of Christ are not members of the family of God, that they are all slaves to sin, but once they are brought into the family of God, they become slaves to God, Romans 6, that he would need to do nothing more than just tell the truth of the regeneration of this man. And because of the prior demonstrated performance of Philemon, he would act accordingly. And the thrust of this letter was not that Onesimus was a slave that should be set free. The thrust of this letter is that all that are of Christ, that we are all the same, no longer slaves of sin, with Satan as our father. We are all now free. And this included Onesimus and Philemon and Paul. They were all free. And no matter what their station is or was in this world, they were all equal at the foot of the cross. And they were all slaves to God. And this station, that amazing grace, the adoption by God, the transferring of ownership to God, should make a difference in the way that we live, both outside of the body, but more specifically within the body. And Philemon had demonstrated his love for the Lord through faithfully serving and loving the church that met in his house. 
And this not only refreshed the heart and soul of Paul, but it gave him the confidence to make such a request as this. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is this. Would this letter be written to you? Do we, do I love the body? Do I esteem the body of Christ with such high regard that we refresh those that aren't part of this body? Is our love and our concern for our body so evident that those that leave it, as Onsimius had, that they brag about our love and humility towards the body? Is, is our love for the body evidenced? Is it so well known to the degree that our pastor could, without hesitation, ask that we make a personal sacrifice for the gospel and for the body, one that could possibly cost us dearly, and know that we would willingly, gladly, humbly, and with gratitude, Fulfill that request. Is our life, is my life, known by the importance of the church that which I've coveted with? There is freedom found in Christ, but it's found only in the slavery to God. We are then, and only then, free, finally free, to act in love. Love to Christ, in loving His body, that we have been made part of. We may revel in our freedom, saints. We may revel in the grace that has been given us to be part of the body in Christ as we should. We should revel in that freedom. You could not love this body outside of Christ. Saints, may this love, may our love for our church, may it be so evidenced in our lives as it was in the lives of Onesimus and that of Philemon and even that of Paul. All for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.